0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shri and today I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Ted O'Connell to Raise the Line. He's a family medicine physician who has deep experience in medical education as a professor, department leader, textbook author, and residency program director. Among his many accomplishments, he's authored 18 medical textbooks with Elsevier and serves as editor in chief of Elsevier's clinical key, MedEd. He's putting all that experience to use in his new position as regional director of undergraduate, graduate, and continuing medical education at Kaiser Permanente in Northern California. Dr. O'Connell is also a best selling author, podcast host, and speaker, and has launched several companies in medical education and communications. I'm really looking forward to getting his perspective on how to improve medical education, among other topics. And I'm also a personal fan and user of his products, as many of the listeners to RaiseLine know that I'm actually resuming my third year of med school. So before we started this podcast, I was talking to him about how I've been starting to use his podcast to study for the USMLE as I've been going back into rotation. So Dr. O'Connell, thanks for taking the time to be with us today.
1: Absolutely, Shiv. It's nice to see you again, and I appreciate the invitation to be on your podcast.
0: For sure. So obviously, I know a lot about your background. But what we like to ask all of our guests on Line is first, in their own words, to give us their career highlights and what got them interested in medicine in the first place. Absolutely. I think this is actually a story of
1: interest manifesting in unexpected ways. When I was in high school, I was really interested in business and entrepreneurship, and then had a participation in a service project helping to take care of the unhoused in in Los Angeles. And that really kind of changed my worldview uh, uh, quite a bit. And I started to reconsider my career goals. And as I headed off to college, I kind of put the business idea on the back burner and thought, you know, maybe I want to be a writer, write the, you know, the great American novel or or even screenplays. Um, but then I also got some very good advice to essentially take some math and science classes and have something solid to fall back on in case the writing didn't work out. So as as I wove through my college experience, I ended up majoring in psychology and also participating in the pre-med program and, and realized towards the third and fourth years of college that I really wanted to go to medical school. And there was some some family influence there, certainly interest in the sciences, and really a desire to help others directly. So that's how I ended up going into medicine. But then subsequently down the line, started writing, had the kind of business and entrepreneurship interest manifest in terms of some of the online medical education products that I've helped launch. So it's interesting just to think about how things kind of come
0: through in, in unexpected ways. For sure. Yeah, the zigzagging of careers is yeah. very interesting. Yeah. We're definitely going to dive into your educational experience and, and background. But first, let's go into your clinical. Can you talk to us a bit about maybe your, your present clinical state and you know you chose family medicine? What, what do you find most satisfying about the clinical work?
1: Yeah, I you know I love being a physician, and and even in this new role overseeing the medical education programs for Kaiser Permanente in Northern California, I I've maintained that clinical practice and still do both inpatient and outpatient. And I I've personally, it's part of my professional identity. It's part of what I like to do. I also think if I'm the leader of our organization for medical education, it's important to still be a physician and be able to to have that credibility. In terms of your question about why family medicine, there were actually a lot of factors that went into that. The ongoing relationship with patients over time, the ability to, to develop that deeper relationship. I really enjoyed seeing the full age spectrum that family medicine offers. I like working with my hands as well, so there's a certain procedural component that you can build in to a career in family medicine. I also, as I was thinking about careers, was having a hard time with the idea of giving up parts of what I had learned in medical school to focus really narrowly. It was just something that I I didn't feel like I wanted to give that up and I wanted to stay broader. There was also the opportunity you know, in in family medicine as, as a broad field, there's real opportunity to flex your career and go in different directions over time and almost reinvent yourself. And I kind of liked that component of it. And then i really like the people that that are, are in that field and when i did my rotations I, I felt like i had kind of found my tribe
0: yeah absolutely i think that's a common way to pick specialties is you know who who are you like who are your mentors and certainly other people i know who have come to respect and look up to chose the family medicine career people like david price uh, from the american board of medical specialties who i think then was abfm and atul nakasi who was one of my friends from Medical school. Who was on the Raised Line podcast actually wound up doing a lot of homeless care during COVID in LA. So it maybe has similar kind of background there.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's that. There is that kind of common theme about how people find their their specialty.
0: Yeah. So so moving to the education side, you know we're both fans of Jim Merritt, who kept in touch with me since when we were just starting Osmosis, and also has been working with you for a number of years. Your books. Can you talk to us about a bit about your experience as an educator and then specifically how you got involved with Elsevier and maybe some of the 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 projects or slash books and things you've worked on that at Elsevier that have been most satisfying? Absolutely, and I'm glad you gave Jim Merritt
1: a a shout out. I'll, I'll mention his connection to Elsevier and me in a moment. In terms of the educational side of my career, you know, it's interesting. I didn't really Think of myself as an educator early on, but then now looking back on it, you can kind of see the dots and how they they all connect. When I was in towards the end of my college career, I actually returned to my high school and was essentially looking for a summer job. And for two summers, was a summer school teacher there, teaching science courses. And I think that's kind of the first nugget of interest in in education that happened. I really enjoyed that. I, I then realized as I progressed in medical school that I, as I was learning, I had something to offer to those who were a year or two below me in, in that. And as a fourth year, I really embraced that opportunity to to help kind of take the third years who are new on their clinical rotations under my wing and try to teach them what I could and kind of smooth their, their pathway out a little bit. And I got involved in the doctoring program at UCLA that allowed me to teach courses for the first years in in the, in their doctoring curriculum. And as I progressed in residency, same kind of same theme, the opportunity to teach the medical students and the more junior residents. And over time, I realized that I wanted to build medical education into my career and I got some very nice mentorship from my residency faculty. And by the time I finished up residency, decided I wanted to land in a faculty position and, and make medical education a real Part of my professional career, and then along the way, I started writing both journal journal articles and some clinical materials and some board review, and ended up meeting Jack Feniger, who's also known as John Feniger. He's the one of the two authors of Procedures for Primary Care, which is kind of the bible for procedural care in in, in primary care medicine. And he invited me to help do some writing and editing of his textbook. And then a few years later, I had an idea for a clinical textbook that I wanted to write. I reached out to Jack and said, "Hey, do you know anybody? You're, you know, you're an author. Do you know anybody that you could put me in contact with?" And in his very kind way, he not only gave me an email address. What he actually did was write a nice introductory email to Elsevier and Jim Merritt, kind of vouching for me, and, and that led to the instant workup series of books, and and then. You know, with working directly with Jim and Elsevier, I was offered the opportunity to become an editor of Procedures for Primary Care and then took over some of the products that Elsevier has, the, the USMLE Secret Series and the USMLE Crush Series. And then we launched a Crush Step 1 that didn't exist. And it's just been now almost a two-decade relationship with Elsevier that's been, I think, just a really great one
0: yeah absolutely and you know so what are what are some things you're most proud of because obviously you've you've authored a lot of titles you've educated a lot of students over those two decades and even before then but like what stands out as some of the things you're most proud of at this point
1: well really my intent with being involved in these products is is twofold one it was to develop some clinical resources that would make clinicians lives a little bit easier and and hopefully lead to higher quality patient care and the other was to develop u s m l e products because you know those standardized exams can be a real hurdle for a lot of students. It can be tough to synthesize all of the medical material that you need to learn in medical school and really, my hope it, it, similarly to what I was trying to do as a teacher and kind of smooth people's pathway is to help everyone get through medical school with you know a little bit more ease than than the current system allows and Ultimately, I think if you're providing people with you know a really solid medical foundation, that's ultimately going to lead to more wellness in their professional careers and hopefully better pay- patient outcomes and that's really what I've been going for
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I can obviously relate to a lot of that where you know not only do we want to improve the the experience of students during a very hard but formative period of their life, but more, most importantly, the outcome of medical education is patient outcomes. That's ultimately what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So that's been we're, definitely a great source of meaning for us at Osmosis. I'm sure for you as well. Let's talk specifically about Clinical Key Med Ed. You know that product. Do you want to just give us an overview and and what does what's your role as editor in chief? Absolutely. So Clinical Key Med Ed is actually
1: an entire platform of medical education products that Elsevier has. My role in there has been to be the editor-in-chief of the USMLE Step 1 and Step 2 question banks. And the, the things that I think make this question bank particularly powerful is, first, it's supported by foundational textbooks. Elsevier's got Netter's Anatomy, Nelson Textbook of Pediatrics, Cecil's Essentials of Medicine, Robin's Pathophysiology, kind of all the books that everybody knows. And those are foundational to this question bank and and directly linked within the system to each question. So that after you take the key learning point from your question, if you want to take a deeper dive into any particular topic, that that platform allows that really direct linkage there. The other thing that we did that I think is fairly novel is is around quality control and the and the review of the questions that went into this question bank. What we did was we actually created a, a three-tier process. So each question is reviewed by an editor and then by a senior editor and then by myself as the editor in chief. So you know things change errors, I'm sure it can happen, but we've, I think, really done a solid job of ensuring that these are truly high quality questions and learning points that exist in, in this question bank.
0: Yeah, no, certainly. I've, I've started playing around with it because obviously, you know, we are talking, I'll be taking the steps in the coming years. Certainly, we'll be relying on it. So appreciate all the work you guys have put into that. Outside of the Elsevier educational work, I wanted to give you an opportunity to comment on any of the other kind of educational work you've done outside of Elsevier and Kaiser Permanente before we get into your role at Kaiser.
1: Sure. I, I think the one that I'm most engaged and most proud of currently is medprep to go What we're, What we're doing is crowdsourcing questions and putting them out in audio format and making them free, which I think is actually a key thing. And the intent here is just like any of the other medical education that I've done is to ease people's path and make sure that you're building a solid medical foundation and having, you know, a reasonable approach to the, to the standardized exams. But I really wanted to help support student wellness. And my, my thinking here is that if you have an audio product you can listen to that while you're working out commuting, doing chores, cooking dinner what you know whatever, so that you're kind of maximizing your time and hopefully creating a little bit more time in your day so that you can visit with friends and family and pursue your hobbies and interests and and maintain that that balance as you go through medical school and then the other piece is to put it out there free of charge to help support students you know medical debt is a real issue in this country and I get it that this is just a small piece, but I think if we're, a lot of us are taking that perspective of what can we do to to lessen that debt load, that also hopefully will help lead to student wellness.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I know we've we had Jim Dahl, the white coat investor, on a couple of months ago. And that's definitely an area that we've talked about at length, which is why making medical education more efficient it can help, you know, go from a four-year medical program to a three-year medical program. You could save a whole year of time in tuition or replace tuition with earning potential. So there's all these kind of ramifications. That's actually a good segue into your work at Kaiser because that starts from undergraduate to graduate to CME. So you see the whole spectrum. Talk to us a bit about the role of Kaiser Permanente, which, by the way, I'll say has been one of the most innovative you know, systems uh, is known as one of the most innovative systems in the entire U.S. Given the cost and the outcomes, maybe we can talk a bit about that context too. Absolutely, and you know, Kaiser Permanente
1: is known as an innovative leader. is known for its integrated health system, its focus on quality outcomes, population care, and I think some because we're known for those things. I think our educational footprint. Isn't always known or recognized outside of our organization. And that's one of the things that I'm in this really trying to do in this new role is to make sure external organizations see the footprint that we have and, and the outstanding residency training programs. So in our system, just in Northern California, and I want to emphasize we have training programs in Southern California, Mid Atlantic, Pacific Northwest, but in Northern California alone, We have 800 medical students who come through our facilities each year for part for their third and fourth years to get their clinical rotations, as well as many pipeline programs that we have that reach down into community colleges, high schools, et cetera, to really help try to help develop the healthcare workforce in our communities. We have 18 residents and 19 fellowship programs in Northern California that includes 375 of our own sponsored residents. Plus, we also get 1,100 residents per year from surrounding residency programs at UC San Francisco, Stanford, UC Davis, et cetera. So the, there are a lot of trainees coming through our system to, to get exposure to patient volume and, and expertise in our system. There's a lot of research as well going on, both within the training programs and outside of the training programs. Each of our residency and fellowship programs is is supported by a research project manager that then plugs into the biostatistical consulting unit at our division of research. And just last year in 2022, we had 320 resident-led research projects that happened. So really large research footprint. We have over 5,000 CME events annually. At Kaiser Permanente in Northern California. And that's, again, just emphasizing, that's just Northern California. And Southern California has 19 residency programs of their own, and I believe 16 fellowships. So it's a really big educational footprint that I don't think
0: is always recognized because it's our system that gets a lot of the attention. Yeah, that's incredible scale. And again, we've been privileged to be able to work with people like Mark Schuster, the dean of the KPSOM, the Kaiser Permanente School of Medicine as well. So I've just been really impressed with the kind of grounds-up approach that people at Kaiser take and try vertically integrating and removing a lot of the inefficiencies that a lot of siloed systems seem to have. Right. So zooming out to all the education work, let's talk about medical education as a whole. You know, what are some of the positive changes you've seen in the medical education landscape in the last couple of years? And then what are some of the biggest concerns you have about where we're going or opportunities?
1: Absolutely, there, there's been both of those—a lot of positive changes as, as well as biggest as well as concerns and challenges that medical education are, are facing. In terms of positives, I would point to more students who are traditionally underrepresented in medicine going into careers in medicine, and you know we still have a lot of work to do and networking and programmatic development to continue to make that happen. But seeing that has been outstanding and. We also need to build systems on the other side of it to make sure that those learners are supported as they go through their medical education and or medical school and residency training. We're seeing more medical schools initiate early clinical experiences in the first and second year. You know it used to be very traditional where first and second year were classroom work and then you'd be launched into your clinical experiences in the third year. But I think building that in early just has a lot of benefits for medical education and really creates a why for why you're learning this stuff from the textbooks and videos and wherever else you're getting your, your information. In terms of concerns, you know, I think the pandemic very definitely for those. Two two and a half years had a had an impact on students' clinical experiences for that cohort going through, and I, that's created some challenges and hurdles for that particular cohort in terms of just getting back up to speed from a clinical standpoint. Rates of burnout in medicine, you know, even before residency begins, it's a it's a process that really probably begins in undergrad and the pre med experience, and then on through medical school. But you know, just higher rates of burnout. All the way along the line that i think need to be addressed you know there's some medical schools that i think rely a bit too much on shadowing experiences on in the clinical realm as opposed to actually getting in there and and being more like a junior resident so that is something i think probably needs to be addressed and, and then probably the biggest challenge is just the doubling time of medical knowledge that exists and the, and the challenge in, in managing that in 1950 the doubling time Of medical knowledge was 50 years. And by 2010, it was down to three and a half years and is now estimated to be somewhere around 73 days. So just trying to manage all that incoming knowledge, what that actually means is that whatever somebody learns in their first three years of medical school 10 years from now, that's going to be only 6% of the knowledge that they need to have. And, and, you know, just trying to really fathom how you keep up with that doubling time is just a challenge for all of us in medicine and speaks to the need for lifelong learning too. So making sure that you have access to really good CME and other medical education sources.
0: Definitely. And those are great stats to share. I'm glad you brought that up. Because when, when I started med school, which is not long ago, it was 2011, the first time around was the saying was 50% of what you learn in med school will be out of date in five years. The problem is you just don't know which 50%. Clearly, <laughs> if we talk about five years ago, there was no COVID-19. And obviously, that became a, a major issue the last few years. So I'm wondering, you know, this something I'm just kind of asking all of our guests about, because it's so in the news and so top of mind, and I've been experimenting with a lot, is this age of AI has begun, right? Like with with ChatGPT really bringing it to the consciousness. There's been a lot of AI over the years. We've had people on the podcast like Eric Topol and Dr. Dave Albert, who you may know, talk about AI in medicine and tons of FDA approved, you know, AI detection for different ailments, ECGs, radiology, dermatology, et cetera. But this is different where it talks, it's the knowledge generation, knowledge creation. You can use these tools to create quizzes, multiple choice questions, to create videos, to diagnose potentially. A lot of that's happening. Examples of people plugging in lab results and a patient case and getting a differential diagnosis, companies like Glass Health, et cetera. So I'm just curious, what's your take on generative AI and are you starting to use it? Are you pro? Are you con? What do you think?
1: Well, I, I think you know some of our tech leaders are are starting to urge some caution around AI, and I think that's certainly in the background that we need to think about unintended consequences and how it potentially can alter society. But no, I'm pro overall. You know, with with that note of caution, and when you think about clinical medicine, the opportunities are virtually boundless. You know, recently there was a discussion of of the ability to have the ai listen in the background and help generate clinical notes and as you mentioned the ability to potentially diagnose cancers earlier and assist in mammography you know you could take any particular part of medicine i think drill down and see how ai potentially has a a benefit there the other question is how does ai fit into medical education And, and i'm still kind of pondering that because it's a double-edged sword. It it has the ability, I think, to really help synthesize data and allow a learner to focus in in a particular area, but it also has the potential to just massively increase the amount of information coming at a learner. And and I think it'll be very important for learners to understand what their learning style is so they can harness AI to help them really drill down into, into how they're brains work the best but i I think we're really i think we all know we're really just scratching the surface here and seeing the tip of the iceberg in terms of what ai might be so it's going to be something i will continue to explore and and try to figure out how it how it works into medical education
0: yeah absolutely and continuing on that theme though you know one thing one debate that flares up every couple years in earnest but it's kind of in the background all the time is the importance of summative assessments right so as we know Colleges, I think the majority of colleges in the U.S. don't even require the SAT or ACT anymore. I think eight years ago, I, I wrote an article for the healthcare blog called The Real Problem with Board Exams and How to Solve It, where I was advocating that you know, the USMLE, among other summative assessments, plays two important roles. One is the demand for certain residency spots outweighs the supply. And so you have to have some sort of national objective exam to help program directors figure out that. And you're a program director, so you can comment on that much better than I can. The second and probably more important one is it's a forcing function for people to sit down and learn, right? They actually just have to learn. They can't just kind of go through past classes and and not really emerge with like a working knowledge. The analogy I used was vocabulary. Why do we teach children vocabulary in school? It's because even though we have great dictionaries and word processors and tools like that, if they don't know any vocabulary, their not their ability to read or write is just so slow. They won't even know how they're using words because they don't know the connotations, et cetera. So I think it's very similar to why you have to sit down and actually have a working knowledge. But that that was ten years ago I wrote that article. And now now with AI like, you know, and diagnosing better, being able to pull the right clinical trial guidelines, pull the right scientific paper to try a new drug, the role of a doctor has changed, is changing, the role of a nurse is changing. So can you comment a bit about you know, both of us have done so much USMLE test prep. I'm just curious, what you're, what do you think of these exams? Step one, when pass fail, step two is more important now. Just commentary on that.
1: Wow, Shiv, we could probably do a whole hour on this topic alone, but I'll, I'll try to hit some of the key points. You're absolutely, I totally agree about the forcing function of an exam like, like the USMLE. I think it's important that we acknowledge that those exams can be biased, that individuals' access to education programming all the way along from starting with kindergarten right right along can have an impact on how they're able to perform on an exam like that. There, Because of the cost of the exam and the cost of some of the preparation materials, there's variability in terms of individuals' access to materials to prepare for that. And, and all of that does create inequities in our system that we absolutely need to address in terms of the exam itself you know over time over these last two decades it has the exam has moved away from memorization and more towards clinical vignettes and synthesizing information and being able to take medical knowledge and apply it to clinical scenarios so i think that's heading in the right direction but as medicine changes, you know, and AI gets involved, and we're now in an era where it's more important to know how to f- find where the information is than to have it all in your brain, the exam's going to need to change. You know, and besides the forcing function that you mentioned, there there is also, you know, it, it is a licensure exam. And similarly to somebody who's trying to get board certified in a in a particular specialty, there's a certain quality control that i you know that i think is behind the intent and i'm not i don't want to minimize that that this is big business and the usmle brings in a lot of revenue on the backs of medical students like none of that is lost on me there is a quality control component in our meta you know in our society and there's a reason why residency programs are accredited and medical schools are accredited and this is kind of the way to accredit individuals and at the same time i think the exam kind of needs to be rethought for you know these next 10 20 years where
0: medicine's rapidly changing yeah that's a it's a very nuanced reply i appreciate that and hopefully we should get you back on the podcast and talk more about this or work on a paper or something together about it because i think it is it is a fundamental question and every level of training not just medical but you know, college, as mentioned, uh, pre college is going through this existential crisis of, you know, what's the point of education in, the, in this age or how do you optimize it? So I know we're taking you over time. So I only had two other questions for you. The first is, you know, you've, you've directly and indirectly helped so many current and future physicians. What's your advice to our audience about meeting the challenges of the present moment and approaching their careers in healthcare?
1: I think I have a couple of of, pieces of advice there, Shiv. One is to seek mentorship early. You know, medicine is a nuanced field. I don't think anybody inherently... Just knows how to go in and be successful in that, and mentorship can really help facilitate that path. and and It's important for everyone. I, I think it's particularly important for those who are underrepresented in medicine because they don't have the same representation in the medical field. So, trying to seek alignment in the mentorship super important. It is a tricky process. Getting just starting with the whole pre med program and how do you get into medical school, and then how do you navigate and how do you learn best and uh how do you pick a specialty. There's so many potential pitfalls and potholes that I think having that mentorship and starting early can really help facilitate the process. The other really big thing that I think can help students address the challenges is is really considering how you learn best. It's, you know, we all have different learning styles there are a lot of resources out there that fit different learning styles, but I think it's important to really, you know, sometimes what works for you in college doesn't work as well in medical school. And then even if it works well in medical school, suddenly in residency, you're mostly a full-time physician and have less time to learn. And so just considering what type of how you learn well and what your strategy for learning is going to be so that you can build that that knowledge base to help you care for patients.
0: Just very important to really I think, be intentional about all of that. Yeah, that's extremely wise. Both those pieces of feedback are things I hope I hope our audience really dives in on from this conversation. My last question, is there anything else in the short conversation that I didn't cover that you want to leave our audience with about you, about Kaiser, your background, medical education, whatever you, you'd like? I think we've had a, a pretty broad ranging conversation here,
1: Shiv. So there there aren't any any real gaps that that I think need to be filled. You know, just thinking about Medical education as well, and, and where some gaps exist too that I think osmosis should address or I should help address, like that that just really need to be fil- filled in. One is is personal finance for medical students, residents, physicians. It's just something that, unless you're taking business courses or doing it intentionally, doesn't really get taught along the way. And embedded in that, I will also add topics around the business of medicine. I think learners in medicine would do well to make sure that they're acquiring some understanding about how medicine actually works and how revenue streams come in. And you know, just all the kind of basics of, of business and medicine, I think, would be good. Dermatologic principles for colored skin is one that's kind of been top of mind for me recently. It just has not been represented well traditionally in the medical literature and is now getting some additional attention but something that needs to be taught better in our medical institutions and then finally climate climate change and its impact on health you know it affects wellness and health and something that we probably need to address a little bit better as a medical education community.
0: I think all three of those are are excellent examples and you're right. I think I think it comes down to the schools hopefully teaching these better or at least incorporating them. Just three quick comments on those. Climate change you probably know Dr. Mark Triola at uh, NYU who's been a long collaborator like Kaiser Permanente has his his wife did a knowledge drop with a Sentinels Corner on climate change because the you know, climate change on healthcare very interesting topic that we could spend a couple hours discussing. Second, we're obviously part of the Elsevier family together, and we know Complete Anatomy's, I think, done a great job of introducing diverse skin types in their models, uh, most recently, and the woman's model as well. But then I think uh, you may know Art Papier, who is a raised line guest with VisualDx, and I think they have a really great offering in terms of diverse skin colors and skin types. Obviously, we can do, all do better but I think they're leading in this. And the third is, I mentioned the White Coat Investor. I highly recommend people interested in personal finance and the large commitment they're making when they pursue a career in healthcare, especially medicine. Median debt is $200,000 when you graduate. That's a mortgage. How do you pay that off? How do you live like a resident is what he often talks about. So we've done several videos on that. But most importantly, medicine's changing so quickly. The reason we have this podcast is you know, five years from now, not just AI, but the value-based medicine is now what, 10%, five, 10% of healthcare dollars versus fee-for-service. 20 years ago, that was not the case. And so things are changing so quickly. Kaiser set the framework for a lot of other health systems to become integrated delivery networks. I think taking an interest in this list in the podcast, reaching out to people like you on LinkedIn, which I would encourage all of our guests, all of our listeners to do those kind of things, finding the right mentors, I think can really help educate them. But more importantly, like, bring in some smart passionate mission driven people to help me fix the problems that, that we're discussing here
1: yeah and thank you for pointing out resources around each of those three areas you know they exist right within osmosis and your podcast and elsevier and they're they're out there in the world as well but i think that intentional pointing your listeners to where they can find that is just outstanding
0: thank you and dr O'Connell, i'd like to thank you not only for taking the last 30 40 minutes with us. But more importantly, the work that you've done over the past several decades to educate countless current and future healthcare professionals, including myself. So thanks for all that you've done to Raise Line.
1: Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. I, I appreciate the invitation to be on your excellent podcast. And I wish you all the best in, in these next two years of medical school for you.
0: Thanks so much. And with that, I'm Shiva Gulani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to Raise Line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.